morning, church. It's my joy to be in the fellowship of the saints this morning, looking upward to King Jesus together. Uh, I have the pleasure of bringing the word this morning, and um, I'm, I'm quite excited to do that. First service was great, and so I'm glad that you came and joined us here. If you're a guest rather than a covenant member of the church, then we welcome you as well. Uh, we're glad that you're here. Uh, as a bit of an introduction to you, um, my name is Matt Kirstein. I'm one of the elders, one of the pastors here at the church. Uh, Pastor Joshua uh, most regularly preaches, but I have the privilege of preaching this morning. So it's my honor to lead us in God's word and hear his gospel this morning. Let's begin with some prayer. Lord, we come humble because we deserve no good thing. And yet, you are a gracious God, steadfast in love for those that you've chosen to pour out mercy unto. And we are a thankful people, a forgiven people, and so we come humbly knowing that we don't deserve your forgiveness and grace. So I, my prayer this morning is that you would encourage believers in the gospel truth that saves us and sanctifies us and carries us along and that any unbelievers would hear the gospel testimony and see the goodness of God and the severity of their sin and repent and trust in Christ alone. It's our joy to come and gather this morning to worship you in song, worship you in uh, the teaching and considering of your word, worship you in fellowship. We love you, Lord. It is all because of the work of Christ that we pray. Amen. Psalm 130 was read earlier in our gathering. That is our main passage of Scripture for this morning. You can turn there in your Bibles. It's where we'll spend most of our time. This was the psalm of choice for today because the primary aim is to remind God's people of the centrality, importance, comfort, and glory of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Psalm 130 is a highly regarded psalm to this very end. It has been the foundation of gospel truths for thousands of years for believers to know and find the gospel there. Martin Luther, for example, loved Psalm 130. He called it one of the Pauline Psalms because, like many of Paul's writings, its declaration of forgiveness by grace alone, apart from any fallen sinner's efforts, is very evident. Psalm 130 is one of the best expositions in the Old Testament of the way of salvation. Because of this, it also serves as an excellent gospel proclamation to non-believers. Both believer and non-believer alike must give the utmost attention to God's word this morning. Psalm 130. As you will see, surely our passage, like the rest of God's holy word, is a gift from God. Psalm 130 exposes man's sinfulness. It convicts. It models repentance. It models knowing the goodness of the one true God, the one true Savior. It models trusting Him. It, it proclaims forgiveness and redemption for God's people. Therefore, the title of this sermon is A Song of Guilt, Repentance, Trust, Forgiveness, and Redemption. So let's dive into the scripture. Let's look at the text. As Psalm 
130 begins, we find the writer in the depths of despair. We are thrust right into a very weighty situation. Verse 1, out of the depths I cry to you, O Lord. This should cause us great alarm. Immediately we should feel the weight. Out of the depths I cry to you, O Lord. What is meant by the depths? In Hebrew tradition, being in the depths referred to being caught in dangerous and deep waters. However, what we have here is not a cry from actual waters. No, rather this is a powerful image. This language is to communicate something to us, to bring weight to the despair that the writer is in. But know that this is not primarily about hard circumstances. It is not situational suffering that is primarily troubling the psalmist here. It is sin. We know this because the psalmist writes about iniquities in verse 3, forgiveness in verse 4, and redemption in verses 7 and 8. So the depths here are figurative, meaning that he has been in the depths of sin. And he has been brought into a heavy and convicted place due to his sin. The cost of sin commonly includes hard circumstances, situational suffering, but the first and main despair here, as it should be, is about his sin, not his circumstances. To these points, John Owen writes, he cries out under the weight and waves of his sin. This, the ensuing verses, makes evident, desiring to be delivered from these depths, of which he cried, he deals with God wholly about mercy and forgiveness. And it is sin alone from which forgiveness is a deliverance. So yes, there are likely ill circumstances swirling around the writer as well. But these circumstances are only a symptom of the core problem, namely his sin. John Owen again, sin is the disease. Affliction, only a symptom of it. This is very important to note. In our self-focused, fallen reality, we often care only or too much about the hard circumstances we are in, rather than the sin that brought them about. And when we do peer past the circumstances, oftentimes we're looking for someone else's sin to blame, not our own. Our problem Perhaps even in appreciating a psalm like this is that most of us do not have a proper awareness of our own sin or an awareness of the grievousness and regularity of our own sin. We love to play the victim, frankly. We, we are experts at self-focused pity and blaming others. This is one of the most common pitfalls I've experienced and seen in this life and in ministry there is a constant need for fallen men, women, boys, and girls to be called to look correctly at situations, to look inward at their own sin, and to be convicted by our own unrighteousness. This is too often the case for believers. Though we are identified and saved by Christ, yet we remain in fallen flesh, still committing sin and being deceived. 
sometimes by our sin. And it is urgently the case for non-believers who remain identified by their sin and facing the wrath of God if they do not repent and turn to Christ alone. As James Montgomery Boyce wrote about this, we need to recover a sense of sin. We need to discover how desperate our condition is apart from God. We need to know that God's wrath is not an old-fashioned theological construct, but a terrible and impending reality. We need to come out of our sad fantasy world and begin to tremble before the awesome holiness of our Almighty Judge. A real awareness of our own sin is critical. To this end, one of the gifts to help in this that God has given the church, the community of professing believers, is one another. We need each other to call us to think, feel, and act in truth. Looking first and foremost in light of Scripture to rightly see and repent of our own sin. And when we do this, when we rightly see our sin, the fitting reaction is remorse. Believers shall not stay there long, but sorrow should overcome the one who sins. In light of the good, perfectly righteous, holy God, the nastiness of our sin looks vile. In this, our unworthiness for God and any of His goodness should be clear to us. We should feel the weight of our sin and feel that it's an affront to God. Even the, quote, smallest of sins deserves the eternal wrath of God. Now, there are times when our sin has piled up, many sins, repeated sin, or the time when we commit a very heinous sin. Some sins are more grievous than others. Or worse, even a combination of these things, very grievous and very many. In this, surely a believer, or perhaps one that the Lord is convicting unto conversion, comes to experience the depths that our first verse speaks of. Sin has brought you low. It ruins what God has made good. It gives you a feeling of failure and or imprisonment. It has reminded you of its curses and condemnations. This is the feeling of the depths. Being in the depths is like a horrible pit where there's no water for your tongue, or along with how the original audience would have heard the line of the song, it gives you the helpless sense of being in deep waters far from land or boat, threatened by the dark depths beneath you. If you truly picture that, put yourself there, nothing around to save you, treading water, the darkness beneath you, so that's what they would have heard in this verse, the way it's articulated. The writer of our psalm, like the writer, you, you in this moment see the vastness and vileness of your sin and you come to experience the depths. At this point, consider what Boyce also says, quote, Suppose you are aware of your sin. Suppose you are one of those who truly are troubled by the, their many great and wrong transgressions. 
Suppose you are in the depths. Where can you turn for help? You will not find it in yourself, certainly, any more than the writer of the psalm found it in himself. The only source for help for you is God and His mercy. You need to prostrate yourself before Him and ask for help. If you are looking inward for help, you are only going to sink deeper and deeper into the black abyss. What you need is God, who alone is able to pull you out, set your feet on a rock, and establish your goings. There's a real temptation for some to see their sin, maybe feel the weight of the depths, and then sit in it, stay there. This is a seriously ungodly thing that some do struggle with. But I must, along with God's word, call you away from that temptation. If you have a tendency to do this, or you come to experience that temptation in the future, you must see that God's word lines out a path for us to take. You are not permitted to be depressed in sin, to stay focused on yourself and your despair. Do not tell yourself that's just how you are, or you're in a very bad place that warrants it. No, turn to Christ. Find the way in Christ. Consider 2 Corinthians 7.10 to this point. It says, Godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret, whereas worldly grief produces death. Godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret. That's action. That's not staying in the sin and feeling bad about it. It produces a repentance. But worldly grief produces death. Now, Christian, you you may not and cannot have worldly, fleshly grief. Grief that just causes you to wallow and stay and feel bad for yourself. Maybe there's some conviction there, but it's you're not moving towards the Savior. You may not and cannot stay in despair. Stay in your sin, make excuses, punish yourself, justify yourself, look inward for help, or entertain any other worldly method. Christians convicted of sin, those experiencing godly grief, a real conviction for your sin, are moved to repentance that leads to salvation without regret. Unbeliever, for those in the room who are unbelieving, take special note here as well. Staying in your sin, choosing to try your own way, not trusting in God, and not going to God is merely worldly grief, and it produces death. Worldly grief is associated with the most grievous sin a person can commit, the sin of unbelief in Christ, denial of God's revealed word. There is no hope and no salvation for those who remain unrepentant in their sin, only death. So, what must we do? What is modeled for us in God's word? The psalmist knew He needed God, so he called out. He knew his desperate need for a Savior. He knew the only way is the God who saves. So he cried out to God for help and deliverance. 
This is the first step of repentance, knowing God and moving in a righteous direction. The psalmist does not stay idle. He does not choose to simply feel bad for himself and be in ongoing grief. He does not seek deliverance in himself or any other mere man or in any idol. Rather, he goes to God who is able to save, who is the present help in times of need like every other time. See verse 1 and 2 together now. Out of the depths I cry to you, O Lord. O Lord, hear my voice. Let your ears be attentive to the voice of my pleas for mercy. The only source of true help for you and I is God. In Him alone is lasting mercy, forgiveness, and salvation. This psalmist knows that the one true God hears prayers. He always hears the prayers of the repentant. And God gives His grace freely to those who repent and trust in Him alone. So the psalmist pleads with the Lord, not on the basis of his own assumed worth or merit or righteousness, but in repentant humility, he pleads for grace. O Lord, hear my voice. Let your ears be attentive to the voice of my pleas for mercy. He needs grace. He needs mercy. Why? Because sin is the problem. Sin guilts us and ruins us. Look at verse 3. If you, O Lord, should mark iniquities, O Lord, who can stand? This should stop us in our tracks. If you, O Lord, mark iniquities, God does mark iniquities. God sees all the evil actions of men done openly or in the dark. We cannot hide our sin from God. He knows all our iniquities. And if God were to enter into judgment of us on account of our sin, as we stand there with a record of sin and nothing else, while we are seeking to stand apart from Christ, the consequence would be eternal damnation. Look at the judgment, a judgment passage from Revelation. We see this reality and consequence for those who seek to stand apart from the one true Redeemer. Revelation 20, verses 11 through 15. Then I saw a great white throne, and him who was seated on it. From his presence earth and sky fled away, and no place was found for them. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne, and the books were opened. And then another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged by what was written in the books. That's where God marks our iniquity. They were judged according to what they had done. And the sea gave up the dead who were in it. Death and Hades gave up the dead who were in them. And they were judged, each one of them, according to what they had done. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. And if anyone's name was not written in the book of life, the book of Christ, then he was thrown into the lake of fire. As I said, this should stop us in our tracks. We are not owed mercy and forgiveness. The only thing God owes sinners is wrath, eternal wrath. 
Psalm 130, verse 3, If you, O Lord, should mark iniquities, O Lord, who can stand? Who shall stand? Not one fallen man standing on their own accord, since all are sinners. No one can stand before God because, as Paul wrote in Romans 3, all, both Jews and Greeks, are under sin. As it is written, none is righteous, no, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. In our natural state, apart from God's saving grace, all of us are wrecked in sin. As Psalm 1.5 tells us, the wicked will not stand in the judgment. They come standing and they leave being thrown into God's wrath. Who can stand before his righteous judgment? Who can bear his wrath and vengeance? No one can. And it's righteous for God to be just. This is grim. This should cause us great alarm. But there is a solution to our sin problem. One solution. And our psalmist knows what it is. He goes to God in faith. He knows God has promised a way, a redeemer, and he has real hope in the promise of God. Going to God in repentance and faith is the only solution to our sin problem. The sin problem that separates fallen man from the glorious God. Let us never be convinced otherwise. There is no other way. Let us not act a fool, staying in our despair or repeating our sin, being unrepentant. Let us go to God in repentant humility, full of faith in Christ alone. That is what we see here in the psalm, our writer doing, crying out to God in faith. He knows his only hope is the promise of a Redeemer, the mercy of God. Verses 3 and 4 together now. If you, O Lord, should mark iniquities, O Lord, who can stand? But with you there is forgiveness. That you may be feared. Hope. True hope. But with you, God, there is forgiveness. What a wonderful truth this is. But with you, there is forgiveness. The forgiveness we need because of our guilt and sin is only found in God. Not with angels, nor any other human. Nor any other created thing we idolize or cherish. Only in God is salvation, which flows from His grace and mercy through the blood of His Son, Christ Jesus. Our God, the one true God, is a forgiving God. Surely our psalmist knows the promise of God, given all the way back at the scene of the fall of mankind in Adam where God declared the gospel of the Redeemer to come. Genesis 3.15, speaking to Satan, God says, I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring, Christ. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. Surely our psalmist knows 
of that gospel promise of the Redeemer to come to save from the fall that happened and the guilt of sin. Surely our psalmist knows the other occasions and promises of God for the Redeemer to come. He's heard and read the types during the Old Covenant that pointed to the Messiah, the antitype. He knows the numerous instances where Jesus is declared in the Old Testament revelation. Get this, for example, the Septuagint, the Greek Old Testament, which Christ in his earthly ministry and his apostles quoted from, translated our verse, verse 4, as there is propitiation with thee. There's forgiveness with thee, there's propitiation with thee. Propitiation with God. Propitiation is a satisfying of due penalty so that forgiveness and blessing can be extended to the subject, given to the subject. In biblical gospel consideration, propitiation means Jesus satisfies God's wrath do the elect based on his substitutionary atonement. Jesus satisfies God's wrath so that we can have forgiveness. Our psalmist is declaring the gospel truth of propitiation in Christ alone and forgiveness for certain sinners. To this point and verse, theologian John Gill wrote, God had planned and promised Christ to be the sacrifice for sin, the propitiation and the ransom of his people. Yes, church, amen. This is our hope. Jesus is our only hope. This was the psalmist's hope for solution to his despair, for his guilt and sin. He knew of the Redeemer to come, so he speaks of the propitiation. In the gospel of Christ is the only salvation. The only solution to our record of sin and separation from God. We know guilt. And consider this. When you're reminded of guilt for your sin, when you have remorse for your sin, sorrow, despair, let us know more the gospel. In this turning to Christ for the first time or throughout the Christian life, we no longer bear the burden of guilt, remorse, sorrow, and despair. As we noted, God sees all the evil actions of mankind done openly or in the dark. We cannot hide our sin from God. He knows all our iniquities, but He provided a way. God provided a way. I have guilt, a record of sin that I should be judged by. You have guilt, a record of sin that you should be judged by. But for those whom God has made alive in Christ by His grace, those who have been given saving faith in Christ alone, God has forgiveness for us, not wrath. Because Jesus paid our debt. Look, look at this, church. The Apostle Paul declares the content of our sermon to the believers in Colossae. Look at Colossians 2, 13 through 14. I love this verse. It says, You who were dead in trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with Christ, having forgiven all of our trespasses. How? How? By canceling the record of debt that stood against us 
with its legal demands, he set it aside, nailing it to the cross. Praise God. This is the only solution to our sin. There is no other way to forgiveness. Here is the only relief to our despair. Here is the only way to have fellowship with God now and forever. We can see now that our psalmist starts in the depths of despair, but it progressively, steadily climbs upward. It climbs from the abyss of guilt and sin to the high ground of steadfast hope in Jesus, the one true Savior. Like this psalm, when you rightly see your sin, when you feel the conviction brought on by the Holy Spirit, when you feel the depths of despair, know this gospel. Know and fear the God of this gospel. Know his forgiveness towards those who repent and trust in him. Look at, look at what happens at the end of verse 4. Look at what it's getting at. With you there is forgiveness that you may be feared. That you, God, may be feared is talking about the disposition a true believer has in the Lord. We cover this in the Word of Truth Catechism. Quote, For the saved, fearing God, is not a fear of His wrath. Rather, it is an awe and reverence. For his holiness and majesty, it is also a humbleness and reasonable trembling towards God's seriousness and power. Proverbs 1.7 says, The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. This is a right fear of the Lord. This is a biblical concept we need to understand. This is... The kind of fear of the Lord that unbelievers do not have. A few verses beyond what we saw in Romans 3, speaking of the unbeliever, the proud, the dead in sin, fallen men, unregenerate, Romans 3.18 says, There is no fear of God before their eyes. So unsaved, you're lacking this biblical gospel fear of God, this godly fear of God. But when God calls his people, causes in them a right understanding of who he is. God calls his people to have a fear of him, a right fear of him. For example, Deuteronomy 10, 12. And now, Israel, what does the Lord your God require of you? But to fear the Lord your God, to walk in all his ways, to love him and serve the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul. Ecclesiastes twelve thirteen. The end of the matter, all has been heard. Fear God and keep his commandments, for this is the whole duty of man. A right fear of the Lord is linked to saving faith and blessing. Psalm 31, 19. How great is your goodness, which you have stored up for those who fear you. How great is your goodness. There's blessing there for those who fear the Lord. We see this through Scripture And that is also what Psalm 130, verse 4 is stating. With you there is forgiveness, blessing, that you may be feared. There is an unbreakable link 
between God's forgiveness and a Christian fear of him. Note, note the reason given that there is forgiveness in our passage. With you there is forgiveness that you may be feared. God working in us produces this. With you there is forgiveness so that you may be feared. God has a righteous motivation to forgive certain sinners so that he is feared rightly. Consider again John Gill on this point now. He says, if there was no forgiveness, then there would be no more fear of God among men than there is among the devils, whom there is no forgiveness. No forgiveness for the devils. There may be dread, as even there is among the demons, but no godly fear. If God was strictly to mark our iniquity and not pardon it, not extend any forgiveness to any sinners through Christ, then there would be none to rightly fear him, because all must be condemned and cut off. If there is no forgiveness in Christ, then all are cut off, and there is none left to fear him. But in order to secure and preserve his fear among men, he has taken the step he has to pardon sin through the sacrifice of his son. Amen. Christian, knowing this and having this grace work through us teaches us to fear not to offend God. And it influences us to serve him well with reverence and godly fear. It engages us to fear him rightly. So, forgiveness is a very real, very true blessing. And it's necessarily linked to a right fear of the Lord. Where you find someone who rightly fears the Lord, you find someone who is forgiven. This goes hand in hand. Oh, the forgiveness of the Lord, what a true gift of grace. So let's consider forgiveness more closely for a moment. Let me share with you James Montgomery Boyce's four things about God's forgiveness. A little paraphrasing here. Number one, God's forgiveness is inclusive for the repentant. Verse four does not say there is forgiveness for this sin and that while leaving out some other sin. Perhaps the one that you have committed It sets no limits on God's forgiveness. It says there is forgiveness. Forgiveness for any sin, for anybody. Murder, adultery, lying, stealing, coveting, failing to keep the Sabbath, taking the name of the Lord in vain. Whatever it may be, there is forgiveness with God. You may be utterly ignorant of the depths of the Bible, But know this at least, there is forgiveness with God. Number two, God's forgiveness is for now. It's for right now. The translators have rightly used the verb is, putting but with you there is forgiveness in the present tense. But the force of the sentence is even stronger in the Hebrew, where there's no verb at all. The Hebrew simply says, with you forgiveness. You do not have to hope, Christian, that somehow you might have forgiveness on the last day, in the final judgment, but you need to stand in uncertainty until then. 
You do not have to work to earn it, for you can never earn it anyways. There is forgiveness right now, at this very moment. And it is for you, if by God's grace, unbeliever, you would repent and trust in Christ alone. Whoever you may be, whatever you have done, whoever you are, at this very moment, unbeliever, you can pass from death to life and know that your sins have been forgiven. Number three, God's forgiveness is for those who want it. It is there, but you must go to God for it. You must trust Him to give it to you. The writer of the psalm is confessing his sin, not covering it up, not minimizing it, which would be a way of pretending that he doesn't even need forgiveness. Instead, he's asking God for mercy, for he has no claim on God or his mercy. He's pleading with him. He is trusting God, for he says, with you there is forgiveness. He knows. Believers, know that you are forgiven in God. Forgiveness for all of your sin, past, present, and future. Your forgiveness was found in Jesus at conversion. Do not doubt that God has forgiven you. When you sin, run to him in confession and repentance, changing course away from sin, accepting and knowing that you are forgiven in Jesus. Number four, God's forgiveness leads to godly living. Some have foolishly objected to the Bible's teaching about salvation. They say, free forgiveness, well that must lead to just more wickedness. If God forgives us for anything we do, then why shouldn't we just go on sinning? Matter of fact is, it doesn't work that way. The forgiveness we are talking about does not lead to license, as some has, have wrongly supposed, but it leads instead to a heightened reverence for God. It is what verse 4 teaches when it adds to forgiveness the words, that you may be feared. We talked about the, the unbreakable link between God's forgiveness and Him working in us, sanctification and godly fear. Christian fear has to do with a holy reverence of God. That is the essence of true religion. It is what is drawn from us when we know that we have been loved and saved by God in spite of our sin and former disregard of Him. Spurgeon translates this verse, the great Baptist preacher Charles Spurgeon, as there is forgiveness with thee that thou mayest be loved and worshipped and served. He expands on the idea there of fear, the fear of God. The true effects of forgiveness are love, worship, and service. We don't have license for more sin. We actually grow in obedience away from sin. By these effects, get this, this is really important. You can measure whether you have actually confessed your sin, believed on God, and been forgiven, or are merely presuming on forgiveness without any genuine repentance and faith. Scripture tells us you will know who are of God by their fruit. Scripture tells us to examine ourselves and see if the truth is in us. 
We will know because there is a longing, a desire, and an actuality of us growing in the Lord. Not perfectly, but truly. When we see our sin, we repent from it. We turn another direction. Those who have been forgiven are softened and humbled and overwhelmed by God's mercy. And they determine to never sin against such a great and fearful goodness. They do sin. We remain unperfect in this first creation. But with our deepest hearts, we do not want to as believers. And when we do, we hurry back to God for deliverance. So, four helpful points to know there. God's forgiveness is inclusive for the repentant. God's forgiveness is for now. God's forgiveness is for those who want it. And God's forgiveness leads to godly living. Let's expand on that last one a bit more. God's forgiveness leads to godly living. Let's expand on it by seeing it in our text. In our next verses, we see the Christian disposition of patience and hope fueled by saving faith. Verses 5 and 6. I wait for the Lord. My soul waits. In His word, I hope. My soul waits for the Lord more than the watchman for the morning, more than the watchman for the morning. The psalmist declares his personal trust in God and shows quite an anticipation for things to come. He's well aware of his past sin. He has experienced the depths of despair and conviction, but in repentance and faith, he has gone to God for mercy, and he knows he is forgiven in Christ the Redeemer. With that, then, he longs for complete relief from his despair. He longs for the other promises of the Lord. He says, in his word, I hope. This is the disposition and declaration of, again, of faith in God. He knows and trusts God's promises, his word. At that time, this included the promise of the coming Messiah, Christ himself. There was an anticipation for the Redeemer to come. He looked forward to Christ and had faith in him. John 1 tells us that Jesus is the word. Jesus Christ is the object ground and foundation of hope, of all blessing, and of grace, and of glory. The psalmist has hope in God's word of promise concerning the coming of Christ and salvation by him, concerning the pardon of sin through him, and eternal life by him, as well as in many other special and particular promises made. He knows God has promised many gracious things. He knows God works sanctification in the saved. Even further, he knows a life without sin awaits the saved, not in this creation, but in the new creation to come. He longs for the better, closer, more intimate presence of the Lord that comes in sanctification and is coming in its fullness one day in the new creation. Surely our sin here and now hurts our ability to more fully realize and enjoy the presence of the Lord we currently have. But through sanctification, we get an increasing awareness in this life of God's gracious presence. And there are things to come in the new creation we can only understand in part at this time. 
In the Lord's predetermined timing, each of his saved children are grown in grace by the Holy Spirit. And in the Lord's predetermined timing, his saved children will experience all of his good promises as fully fulfilled. So, our psalmist waits. But look closer to how he waits. I wait for the Lord, my soul waits. This is a serious waiting. This is not a waiting for a friend to arrive for dinner or a new job to begin or even for a mere healing of the body from injury or illness. No, in his innermost being, he is waiting. His soul waits. Gill wrote, This expresses the intenseness of his mind, the earnest desires of his heart after God, his affection for God, and the exercise of all other graces upon him. His whole soul and all the powers of it are engaged in this work of waiting on the Lord. This is no flippant or half-hearted waiting. This is genuine. This is deep. The, the, the verse continues. And in his word I hope. We considered this a moment ago, but as we look close to how he waits, let's see this again. Friends, do you know the word of God? Can you say what he says there? In his word I hope. Now I'm not asking how many times you've merely read the Bible or how much you can recite from memory even. As critical as reading the Bible is, clearly, and how blessed it is to be able to recite it, these are mere duties if you don't know it rightly, if you do not adhere to sound doctrine, and if you do not love and trust in Christ and His Word. There are far too many in our day claiming to know God, and his word, but they know a made-up idol instead. Or they know ear-tickling teachings that they've heard, rather than the word of God rightly divided. We must learn God's word carefully. We must know God rightly. And we must love and trust his word. And that's the journey we're on here at Disciples Church to do that very thing. So wherever you are on the spectrum of your understanding God's word rightly, we invite you to join us, stay with us as we continue in that endeavor. In all of this, we come to know the promises of God. Promises that we, like the psalmist, can bank our whole hope on. In his word, I hope, we can say with confidence, praise God. Next, verse 6, My soul waits for the Lord more than the watchman for the morning, more than the watchman for the morning. This is repeated for the confirmation of it, and to show the eager and constant disposition of his mind and soul towards the Lord. There is real focus on this. We must see the serious anticipation for the Lord and what he will bring about. Again, this is no half-hearted hope and waiting. This is serious business. Genuine. We are going to consider waiting on the Lord more so in a later sermon in this summer series. 
We'll consider several types of waiting or encouragements in your waiting. But here in this passage, let us see how a broken over sin, but repentant, faith-filled, forgiven child of God waits eagerly on the Lord based on truth. Let us learn from this, church. Let us not be slow to move on from sin. Let us not be dull in putting off sin and despair. Let us be zealous in faith, love, and hope in the Lord and have a right fear of God. Now, our our final two verses turn what is inside of a forgiven man's heart to the right and needed response, an outward declaration of God and his gospel. Look at it with me. Verse 7 and 8. O Israel, hope in the Lord. For with the Lord there is steadfast love, and with him is plentiful redemption. And he will redeem Israel from all his iniquities. Boyce states something well here. He says, the last stanza of this remarkable psalm is extraordinary. Up to this point, all the psalmist's sorrow for sin, all his repentance, prayer, faith, and hope in God were centered around himself. He had to do business with himself. In this last stanza, having found forgiveness... He turns to those about him, to Israel, his peers, and encourages them to put their hope in God too. Because of God's nature, because the Lord is is unfailing, love, and full of redemption. In other words, what the psalmist found when he confessed his sin and sought forgiveness was not a once in a blue moon experience. It is something anyone can discover. For it is based on God's nature, which does not change. God is as forgiving now as he has ever been. And he will always be the same forgiving God. Therefore, the writer says, put your hope in the Lord. Church, this too must be in our response to God's grace upon each of us. A constant and confident outward declaration of the gospel and a genuine plea to others to trust in Christ alone. He speaks of God's steadfast love. He speaks of the redemption found in the Lord. He speaks of God's promises. He shares the gospel good news with others. Shame on us if we only look to receive blessing from God. No, we are blessed to glorify God, and a major part of that is declaring Him to others. Seeking to make disciples of Jesus. Whether our hearers repent and believe or not is something God is sovereign over, but we get the awesome privilege of being truth-tellers, gospel-proclaimers. Those God decreed to redeem, to give eternal life to, will certainly be forgiven of all of our guilt and iniquity. We will be saved. By grace alone, through faith alone, and Christ alone, are people from all tribes, tongues, And nations redeemed. This is how it works. Now, it's how it's always worked. It's how it works until the Lord returns. The only way to salvation. All the repentant ones from all of human history are true Israel. God will forgive Israel of all its iniquities. 
Praise God for his plan, promises, and grace. So believer, be encouraged. Are you in sin? Repent. Are you in the depths of despair? Even turn to God. Set your eyes on him. And know you are forgiven. Know he is good and his promises will not fail. Find refuge and rest and joy in the Lord. To the unbelievers in the room, seeing this passage and hearing this sermon, I I call you to repent of your sin and yourself, your efforts, your thoughts and ways, and trust in Jesus Christ alone for salvation, for forgiveness, redemption, and eternal life in Him, for His glory and for your good. Hear clearly the gospel which is the good news of the grace and power of God to redeem undeserving sinners to eternal life through Jesus' perfect, sinless life, substitutional, sacrificial death, and victorious resurrection from the grave. Repentant sinners are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, and Christ alone from the eternal wrath that we deserve, and we are reconciled into an eternally secure relationship with God. That is the good news. That is the only way, the true solution to our despair and our problem, our sin problem. It's all by God's grace, according to His sovereignty. He moves on the hearts of dead, unrepentant sinners and gives them new life and causes them to repent and trust in Christ, as we're talking about this morning. All praise and glory be to God. We are utterly helpless. We need God. All praise and honor and glory to the one true God. Let's pray. Lord, we again come humbly because we deserve no good thing. And yet, in your grace, you've given us the only true good, you. You've given us mercy and forgiveness so we can have you. We love you, Lord. We are overwhelmed by the awesomeness of this gospel, the true gospel. We're thankful for the work of Christ. There is no other way but in Christ alone, and we are so thankful. So I pray that my brothers and sisters here are encouraged this morning by the gospel, reminding them of their unworthiness and guilt and sin, and yet your grace and mercy for redemption and forgiveness unto proclamation and holy living. I pray for any unbelievers in the room that they truly consider this and that you'd be doing a work in their heart unto conversion. We love you, Lord. It is in Christ alone. It is because of Christ. As we sing our closing song, which is inspired by this psalm, Cause us to wait well, eagerly, in our deep inner being for all your good promises to be experienced by us. We love you, Lord. We pray because of Christ. Amen.